Good morning. My name is Wendell Moses. I'm filling in for Tim Jennings. Off on vacation. That's amazing. I welcome you all today. I really appreciate your participation. You know, it's always easier when you're you're teaching and you have responses back from the the members of the class. And so, uh, let's bow our heads for prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together and talking about you. Be with us. Send your spirit. Be with our hearts and our minds and our mouths. May we honor you. Amen. Okay, this uh, lesson this week is the two covenants for September 2. When I get ready for a uh, teach class or whatever, I have a laptop that I do it on, and then I switch it over to a PDF file. When I turn on my laptop this time, it said, getting Windows ready, don't turn off your computer. And I thought, well, that's close to what the class means, you know? Getting Christians ready, don't turn off your mind, you know? There was another um, error message that came up last night when I was trying to print my backup copy in case that these electronic things didn't work. And it said, um, head needs to be cleaned. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be appropriate too. So anyway, there are two things I would like you to, re- to think about or remember as we're talking about this class today. One is a text that we covered earlier in Galatians, Galatians 2.20. The life I now live... I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. And the the second is a quote from Christ Object Lessons. It's, as the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished in his strength. All his biddings are enablings. Christ Object Lessons 333. Um, the memory verse for this week, I do not know where it came from. Okay? Well, I do know where it came from. It came from Galatians 4.26. But I don't know where it came from. It says, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Okay? All right. Okay. So, starting off with the lesson, um, there are certain things that I don't like to th- think about. There are certain things I don't like to talk about. I don't like to read about. Um, You know, someone asked me if I had seen the movie Titanic. And I said, I hadn't. I knew how I ended. The ship sank. Um, You know, I like stories that end with a good ending. Okay? Um, A friend of ours um, who is much more involved in watching movies and getting involved in it and whatnot than I am... Um, I seldom go to the theater, um, not because I don't like to, it's just I fall asleep, and it's an expensive nap. Um, but uh, she was watching, the, went to the movie A Cry in the, Ni- Cry in the Dark, it's about the Chamberlains and, and when the dingo got the baby and all that sort of stuff, and then they're, they're trying to prove their innocence afterwards or whatever. And um, she was in watching this movie, and... Um, the lady was getting ready to leave the tent with her baby in the tent. And our friend was so involved, she jumped up in the theater and says, Don't leave! <laughs> That's kind of how I am with certain passages that I read in the Scripture. I don't like to read Genesis 3. You know? You know how it's ending, and you just don't want to read it. Okay? I don't like to read Second Samuel 11. David and Bathsheba. You know, it just makes your heart ache. I don't like to read Genesis 16. Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. That's our lesson today. Um, so, um, our passage that we're covering for this week, out of Galatians, is Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Does someone mind opening their Bible... And read that entire passage, Galatians four, twenty-one to thirty-one. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. 
His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. How far down do we go? 31. Um, these things may be taken figuratively. For the woman represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Thanks. So we're talking, he's using an analogy here of two covenants and how we are saved, how we come to God and whatnot. So what was the reason why Paul wrote the, this letter to the church in Galatia? What went wrong? Well, Paul's teachers were coming in trying to say you needed to be sort of Jewish before you could... Legalism. Okay. So, so ha- our approach to God or God's approach to us was being misconstrued. Okay? And so... Um, the letter to the Galatia is organized first in, you know, Paul opens the, the letter with, I'm, I'm worried about you. What has happened to you? You have abandoned what, we, what you've previously believed. And then he goes on and talks about his credentials, essentially setting his credentials up against the credentials of the people who are coming in to bring this false gospel, okay? And then he talks about the restoration of unity with God by trusting God and not trying to be doing some specific task or work. And that's when it comes along with the, the passage 2.20, which I quoted before. The life I now live, I live not by doing something for God, but by trusting him. So how did the Galatians first come to the gospel? They trusted, trusted God, and now they are abandoning that trust for doing something else. So, that's how it was with Abraham um, in, or Paul talks about in 3.6. That's how it was with Abraham in Galatians 3.6. Consider the experience of Abraham as the scripture says, he believed God and because of his faith and trust in him, God accepted him as righteous. So, Christ redeemed us from the natural consequences of our lawlessness. Okay. The law was given to identify sin and death. It was given prior to our trusting him. Prior to our trusting him, it walled us in and protected us just from doing bad things. Okay? But after we came to God, we don't use it in the same magnifying glass MRI scanner way to identify unless we are straying, okay? And then Paul went on to talk about sonship and adoption versus strangers or foreigners. And so this week we come to the two covenants and his analogy of the two covenants. Before I do that, I would like to turn to Tuesday's lesson, okay? Um. In Tuesday's lesson, it talks about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. If you go to the um, third paragraph on that page, the last sentence in that paragraph, on the, on the um, third paragraph, um, Tuesday's lesson, uh, says, Had Abraham trusted in what God had promised him, instead of letting the circumstances overcome that trust, none of this would have happened, and a lot of grief would have been avoided. So, when you're presented with a problem or a decision or a life situation, how do you know what the solution is? There aren't many of us who are asked 
to be the progenitors of the anointed one. Okay? But when we live our lives, how do we know what is right? I've had angst this week over um, kids, you know, adult children, their life choices, you know. And I've I caused some introspection in my life about some of my shortcomings that I happened in my life, my diversions in my straight and narrow path. Um, not from a Christian perspective, but just doing crazy things. You know, I flunked a year of medical school. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long story, so I won't get into it. And, um, you know, I, on the test that I quote flunked, I, I, I scored higher than 70% of the nation. Okay? And I thought I would pass. And they said, no, you never showed up. So in that era, you had to go to class, you had to take quizzes, you had to do other things, and I didn't. And so they said, you get to repeat this, which I didn't. For a di- That's another long story, but anyway. Um, you know, and so I took a diversion in life of a year, you know, created by some poor choices that I made, etc. I wish I hadn't chosen that. How do you make a decision as far as what you're choosing to do? What principle do you use? Okay, prayer. Prayer? Okay. Yes. Russell. We've been given a, a fairly, I think, a fairly stable formula. It's laid out quite uh, in detail in Tim's first book. You subject something to the test of reason and their reason combined with a an un an unwarped conscience gives us sound judgment and sound judgment uh, making a making a decision based on sound judgment subjected to reason and conscience and then allowing feelings and and passions and um, desires to be the icing on the cake and not the cake cake itself uh, all that should harmonize with the decision. And I'm not talking about a decision on which car to buy. Or that. I'm talking about, you know, maybe some higher decisions, moral decisions. But even even, even the, the seemingly um, inconsequential decisions, like what car to buy, should be subjected to reason and conscience and emotion. Uh, emotion lasts. There's a book out there that says all the big decisions are already made for us. The little decisions force us into those big decisions. Yes. Uh, just uh, my father was an IFR pilot. I mean, he could fly in instruments and bad weather and all that kind of thing. And one of the things that a pilot would have to do under those circumstances is trust the instruments. Many times bad things have happened because people like... JFK Jr., for example, he was trying to get his IFR license and got in bad weather, and the best thing he could have done is put his, his, his plane on cruise control, <laughs> I mean, because it would have done the right thing. But he tried to rely on his sensations, the feelings, and so on, that go with the way you think you are in space. But it only takes just a very short few seconds before you become disoriented, and you can't, and the way you're feeling isn't correct. You aren't in the right position. You aren't flying in the right way. And so I think the basis of that is similar to us. We have to learn to trust our instrument rather than our feelings on a subject because they can be so, they can totally misguide us. Okay. Behind you. Yeah. Um, We should do exactly what this gentleman said, (laughs) sitting next to me, and and plot our own course and embark on that course, and then uh, trust in the Lord to make any course corrections, and that's that's the thing, uh, because we our, our our judgment is what it is, and so this is where trust comes into play. Okay, and, and Scripture tells us quite clearly that those when we're talking about moral decisions, that we have to pray you know, those who do have developed character and the discernment between right and wrong have done so with practice. Hebrews Hebrews five. We have we have um, been intentional 
about developing the ability to discern between right and wrong, between good and evil, between yes and no. There was someone else had their hand up. I don't... You. Well, I think we can go another direction because I think all the decisions... We may can go... We can now go in another direction. All decisions, not just moral ones, involve our projection of consequences of what the future may hold. And I think this ties in with this Hagar decision really, really well because we often make decisions based on our beliefs about the future. Yeah. We actually don't know the future. And so when we make a, a wrong decision... I have to lie to protect myself because if I don't, I'll fail this class or whatever. Or, you know. I didn't lie. I just didn't show up. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Speaking whatever, as a teacher. Whatever we do, the, the, the moral dilemma question where we think we know what the future is, we actually don't know the future. Yeah. And so if we do the right thing, even <laughs> believing that we may end up dying or whatever, terrible consequences we project, those may not happen because we actually don't control the future. That's a good point. I am blessed and I am challenged by Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It was a memory verse that I was given when I was a kid, and every so often I remember it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Never rely on what you think you know. Remember the Lord is in everything you do, and he will show you the right way. I think we have to be, as I previously mentioned, there's a book out saying that all of our big decisions are already made for us because we've made them based on our little decisions about what direction we're heading. And so um, I think it's the little decisions that make us who we are. Why are certain people included in the Bible narrative and other people are not included in the Bible narrative? Why are certain people or people groups not included in the Bible narrative? So, um, you know, someone at work was bemoaning the fact that they felt like their life was meaningless, that in spite of being a faithful servant of God, what was life? Okay. And so I'd like to talk briefly about people that could be spoken more about in the Bible in relationship to the story of the covenants and Hagar and whatnot, etc. You know, there are whole people groups that are not, or if they're mentioned, they're mentioned with a passage. They're not, I mean, we don't know much about it. You know, China, it's mentioned, but that's about it. Northern Europe, most of Africa, most of Asia, North and South America, all, and yet the Bible is about a select small group of people. And even then, many of the people who are mentioned in the Bible, we never hear anything other than their name. So, and um, in 1 Kings 19.18, Elijah was running away from the wicked queen Jezebel afraid for his life and God came to him and said what are you doing here you know I've got 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him you know I don't know any of the 7,000's name what they did for occupation I'm sure they did have an influence they had an influence in their family they had an influence in their community whether they knew it or not Okay? We know nothing about that 7,000. Okay? The woman at the well. What do we call her? The woman at the well. We talk all about her, make sermons about her, stories about her, lessons about her, and everything else, and we have no clue who she is. Okay? How about some of the people we do know their name? Okay? But still don't know much about them. What do you know about Keturah? She had 12 children. She had 12 children. Mm, really? Maybe she did. I don't know. I know she had six. I know she had six. So, in the last paragraph, in Tuesday's lesson, last paragraph, Tuesday's lesson, it lists Hebrews 11, 11, and 12 as a passage that we should read. So, 
I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, It was faith that made Abraham able to become a father, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself could not have children. He trusted God to keep his promise. Though Abraham was practically dead, from this one man came as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, as many as numberless grains of sand on the seashore. So what do you know about Abraham's vitality? I'm sorry? Almost dead. Okay. So how many sons did he have? No. 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 Eight. Who's his first son? Ishmael. Okay. With Hagar. Okay. Part of the story today. Who was his second son? Isaac. Okay. With Sarah, the miracle child. Okay. Genesis 25.1. After Sarah died, Abraham married Keturah and had six sons. Okay? What do you know about those six sons? You know any of them? The Midianites. Okay? Ah, exactly where I'm going. The Midianites. Who, who was their son? One of the sons was Midian. What do you know about the Midianites? There's several stories in the Bible about Midianites. What's the first one? Who's, yeah, who was Joseph sold to? The Midianites. He was sold to the Midianites. Okay? Where did Moses flee when he was escaping from the consequences of Pharaoh? Exodus 2.16. The land of Midian. Okay? So he, he arrives at this well in Midian. And these girls show up with their father's flock. They, they, their father had only girls, and so the girls were the shepherds rather than the guys. And when they showed up to the well, they got run off by these male shepherds. And Moses shows up and says, no, 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 no. These girls were here first. They get to, and so he watered all these sheep and everything for the, the ladies. And the ladies went home and said, guess what? This guy helped us. We're home early. Because this guy helped us water the sheep. We're not home late like we always are because this guy ran off the other guys and he helped us and we're home early. Who is their dad? Jethro. Who is Jethro? High priest of Midian. High priest of Midian. Where do they live? On the east side of the Sinai Peninsula. But as you follow along the stories of Midian, who solicited Balaam to curse Israel? The Midianites. Who were the ones who led the children of Israel into immoral behavior on the very threshold of Canaan at Peor? The Midianites. Who did Gideon defeat? The Midianites. Why were they warring against Israel? These were their cousins. So let's think about the life cycle or the life trajectory or whatever of Midian, the son of Abraham. Okay? He was one of the sons of Abraham. He grew up in Abraham's family. Okay? He was circumcised with all the other kids, all of the male sons. Okay? All the servants and all the, his sons got circumcised. Okay? He grew up and watched Christian, not Christian, godly worship within Abraham's household. He was one of Abraham's sons. He was given an inheritance in chapter 25. Um, Abraham gave him an inheritance prior to his death. Okay? He was one of the sons that showed up to bury Abraham, along with Ishmael. Isaac, Ishmael were the main two sons who, who buried him, along with his other six sons. Okay? One of his subsequent family members was a high priest, a worshiper of the true God. But the farther they got away from Abraham, the more their trajectory was influenced by Moab and the other people who were around them to the point where by the time Moses came along, they were worshiping in immoral ways. 
Eventually, they became the blood enemies of their cousins and warred against them and subdued them, stealing their food to the point of starvation. When Gideon was approached by the angel, where was he? In a dry well. In a dry well. Threshing grain so they wouldn't see him, so they wouldn't steal it and make his family starve. These were his cousins that were doing this to him. Okay? There has been a great deal of criticism of the path that God has chosen in guiding the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Okay? The purging of the land from idolatry and the idolaters. The separation from intermarriage with their Gentile neighbors. The strange ceremonial laws. The right of circumcision on all the males. To what purpose were all these laws made? Yes. Well, their circumcision, for example, their proven health benefits, less infection. Natural law. Some of these things, their dietary laws were much more healthy than the than the diet of the surrounder, surrounding peoples. Yes. The Canaanites practiced extensive incest. Leviticus 18. And they probably, in my view, had terrible venereal diseases. Because in Jericho, they not only had to kill everybody, they also had to burn all the cloth. Um, they had some disease. I don't know what it was. So part of this was natural law, but what other reason? Yes. Well, the main point of circumcision, ultimately, the underlying, um, I think, point is that God wanted Abraham and, and all of the males to understand that this is something that you could not do by yourself. It was, it was a reminder that it was going to come through God, that the promise was going to come through him. And it wasn't something that, that Abraham or anyone else can manufacture. And as Tim, Tim has mentioned in the class before, an Israelite comes into a temple to worship with a prostitute. And she says, oh, I see you're Israelite. You know? Yeah, that's exactly the point. I mean, he's, t- he's telling them to dress differently, but you strip their clothes off of them, mm-hmm. and they're still different. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's more than the outward, you know, to okay. who they are. All right. Back to your original question. If we take a step back, I think we can say with with some level of confidence that everything, every intervention that God has made with humanity, all of humanity, whether the children of Israel or the pagan nations, has been an effort to reveal himself and to to reveal some aspect of his character of love, to, to restore back into mankind's nature the the original design, the nobility of the original design that was forfeited in Eden, mm-hmm. or to uh, arrest uh, them on their pathway to self destruction. Yeah. Everything, whether it's the things that we don't, I, I don't know why he told the children of Israel not to wear garments with mixed clothing, with uh, mm-hmm. mixed threads, you know, linen and cotton. I I have no idea what what what. It, what part of God's character that reveals. But it was clearly something that needed to be revealed to that people in that setting at that time. At that time to that individual. Right. Yes. And the sacrificial system was a correction of the sacrificial system that God gave at uh, the original fall because these nations were at the root of their prophets and various prophecies were doing human sacrifice, sacrifice of babies, and the Lord was correcting the kind of sacrificial system that was already being practiced. You go through the Bible and you look at the things that were horrible that, that God did not do away with, but by His Spirit, in working in our hearts and minds. You know, slavery, polygamy, other things, which were not, and yet He told the king not to be a polygamist. Okay? So the, the king, the ideal of the nation, was not to be a polygamist. And you couldn't mistreat your woman's slave that you took in war. You could not mistreat her. Yeah, so there were things that were, were given that we, you know, culturally, um, there were many things that were still going on that were horrible or whatever. You can only go so far before it, it, it's unacceptable or un, uncomprehendable. 
from someone who is looking and, and being told what to do. So was, were the children of Israel more important than all the rest of the people of the world? Did the Holy Spirit only come to the, the children of Israel? No, he says, I didn't pick you out because you were the best people. I picked you out because you were the worst. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> but they were supposed to be the keepers of his law and commands. Okay? They were, they were the progenitors of the promised anointed one. Okay? They were to tell others of God. They are only important when they are fulfilling the purpose for which they were designed. Okay? When they obstruct God's message, either by lifestyle or other choices, they cease to be important in the narrative. And you have hundreds of years that are even mentioned in the narrative of the children of Israel. Okay? Why have we not read more about Abraham's other children? Keturah's children, because they have little to say about the central message of God's character, love, and redemption portrayed in the remainder of Scripture. There's a reason that those are in other nations or other continents or whatever are not mentioned. It's not part of the story that's being told. There may be stories there, but it's not part of the story that's being told. I think it's the same reason that Satan or Lucifer is rarely referred to in the Old Testament. Right. Same reason. You know, there's a grand central theme to Scripture, okay? God has used all sorts of individuals in that grand central theme. Amos. Who is Amos as a prophet? He was a fig picker. Now, I thought, oh, he grew figs and he went out and, and picked them. No, the type of fig that he had to grow wasn't a very sweet fig. But if you poked it, if you picked it, as in poked, picked, whatever, with an instrument, it would cause it to start spoiling while it was on the vine. It would ripen faster so it didn't get destroyed by the wasps that were inherent as, as a thing. And it made it sweeter as a fermentation. He was a migrant worker in talking to the people that he was sent to he said I'm just a farmer I'm just a, a migrant worker but I was picked by God to tell you this message it's not because I was important you know you look at other people Jeremiah he was a member of the royal family and yet he was a, a prophet you know the disciples we know a lot about some of the disciples, Peter, James, John, Judas, okay? We know a little bit about three of them, Andrew, Thomas, Matthew, okay? What do you know about Thaddeus? He's listed. What do you know about Simon the Zealot? His name only shows up in the list. We never hear anything about Simon the Zealot. And yet, when you go to Revelation 21, it talks about the new Jerusalem. Each of the gate of the city of New Jerusalem is named after a tribe of the children of Israel. What are the 12 foundations? The disciples. Simon the Zealot gets a layer named after him and we know nothing about him. You know, when um, I was thinking about this, you know, there's so much that um, we can only he see by example or whatever, etc. There's a little song that I used to sing when I was growing up. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, black and yellow, red and white, all are precious in his sight. All are precious in his sight. Those other countries that aren't mentioned, they're not mentioned because they aren't 
loved by God. It's not because they're not serving God. You can be one in the mass choir and the earth made new. I want to sing. Okay? And it's not because there's been something magical or anything about it. It's not because there's been something uh, wonderful that has been accomplished. It's because of Him, our Redeemer, that we can sing. Okay? So, anyway. In, in Acts 28, 26, which is repeated from Isaiah 60, um, 2 and 3, there's a passage that says, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to the light, and kings to the brightness of the rising. What were they in the dark about? The knowledge of God. What was the purpose of Christ? Now see, you guys, you've been in this class too long. Okay? It was to reveal about God. You know, so many times we hear, oh, to die. You know? And yet when we read John 17, the last prayer of Christ before Gethsemane, you know, he's saying this prayer and he said, I have shown your glory on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Father, give me glory in your presence, the same glory I had with you before the world was made. I have made you known to those who you gave me out of the world. He had finished his work. And we often think only about his death, resurrection as his work. But really his, his work was to create a character in humankind that was restored to perfection that we can share for all time. Okay? Thank you for clarifying that. Because making Father known was not his only job. He had to restore back into the species human this character you described and, and eradicate the um, infection. Uh, that, that was, uh, lest we be confused to moral influence, right, right. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That, that had to also be done. Right. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and I and you and your neighbor are part of that. God that our enemies, people we really have done us wrong, are God's children too. And why it says, you know, leave avenging and revenging to God because... He cares about their salvation. When they're your enemy, you may not care so much about their salvation. You just want revenge or whatever. He said, leave it to God because that's God's child. And God wants to discipline them in a way that saves them. That's the way he deals with wrong, is purging evil from a person, not by destroying them. Who was the prophet that was cut in half? Isaiah. Isaiah. Who cut him in half? Manasseh. Manasseh. But Manasseh repented and became one of God's children. You know? Can you imagine whenever they first meet in heaven? Hopefully he doesn't have a saw in his hand. You know? David and Uriah. So many things. You know, leave it to God. God will, will make it good because he's out to save that one as well. So, anyway. All right. Last week I asked him... Where, as Christians, do we stand with this immigration issue or these, all these little things that have arisen, you know, Black Lives Matter and all this stuff? Where do we fit in in all that? Because we know that God loves them the same as he loves us. Right. So how do we respond to that? What do we, what do we do? I have to live my life in union with God and act like he would act. We, know, we can say love them. But what if you're in town and they kill your daughter or your son? Or what if they run a car over your family or something? I mean, I know we're supposed to love them. I understand that. But Who killed God's son? Yeah. Okay. Like she said, we have to love our enemies. I have a son right now who terribly, terribly hates his ex-stepdad for the things that he put us through. And I've had to look at him and say, what's 
how do you expect to live in heaven? What if God has touched his heart and changed him? Uriah and David, they're going to have to book each other and get along in heaven. You have to love your enemies. You have to pray for them because you may live with them eternally. I think it comes back to the statement that I'm most concerned about is unless you be converted. Okay? We talk often about washed in the blood or covered with his righteousness and all this sort of stuff. But Christ said, unless you be converted. And unless we are converted, then that, and once you are converted, that question does not make sense. Okay? Because you are, you do have the mind of Christ. Okay? Maybe not instantly with all the emotions and all the, the behaviors and all the things that go along with it. But if you're converted, you can follow him. You know, that's easier said than done. Revelation talks about a group in the end of time that's going to be living that love not their lives unto death. Right. And seriously, I mean, we're way far away from that point. Yeah. You know, it's great. Yeah. You know. Right. Well, and that has bothered me a, a bit because you think about the end of time and etc. And it says, he that is going to be killed, let him be killed. You know, oh, oh. you know. Of course, when I look at it the way Tim looks at it, we're just asleep. So death is not fun. Yeah. Well, my, my, my wife will be driving down the road and she'll say, oh, look, he's sleeping. She's talking about all the little dead animals that have been run over on the road. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, all right. Well, um, we better start the lesson. Um, the two covenants. Uh, on Sabbath afternoon, the first paragraph discusses how people have misunderstood the two covenants, and then that we're talking about um, Sarah and. Uh, um, Sinai and Abraham. The second paragraph has a sentence in it that says, the legalism that Paul was confronting in Galatia was a perversion, not just of Christianity, but of the Old Testament itself. I think that's very true. Okay? Sunday, it talks about the basics of covenants. Okay? A covenant is a various agreement into which God has from time to time entered into with man, Noah, Abraham, Israel. For example, and it goes on the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33, Hebrews 8, 8. And then talks about human covenants between equals or imposed superior for inferior. How many covenants did God make with humankind? I know of at least 12. Okay. If you look up in um, about the covenants, you know, we think often in our vernacular, a covenant as a contract, okay? The vast majority of descriptions of covenant in the Bible have nothing to do with a contract, okay? How you read the word covenant is largely dependent upon the lens in which you see God and his dealings with his creation. How do you see God? Also has a great influence in which you view God. Benevolent, stern, judgmental, gracious, loving. And what does loving mean? Again, that goes back to your view. How do you see God determines whether you see a potion of grace, which is applied to you like paint, or need a gracious being as creator and sustainer of the universe who is reconciling you to himself by his strength and spirit. John sixteen twenty six and 27. When that day comes, you will ask him in my name. And I do not say that I'll ask him on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. He loves you because you love me and have believed that I came from God. God the Father is just like Christ. 
And if you have an idea that God the Father is a different person than Christ, then you need to go back and figure out where it came from. Biblical covenants. If you look up the word covenant in the King James, you know, um, um, concordance, you'll come up to, um, I came up with 272. Now, the, the, the study guide says it's nearly 300, and then I have nothing to um, quibble with them. The first listed as a covenant is Genesis 6.18. What's it talking about in Genesis 6? Noah. Okay? The second covenant mentioned by God. Genesis 9.9. What's that covenant? Noah. Okay? Made with Noah, all humans, all animals, every living creature. It was a promise that there would never be another flood that destroyed the entire earth. He gave a token of the covenant, the rainbow. Now, how much did Noah have to do in this contract to make sure the flood didn't come? Nothing. It was a promise. It wasn't a contract. It was a promise. How did Noah keep these first two covenants? The first covenant being the deliverance from the flood. And the second covenant being the promise of no new flood. Now, the first covenant, you say, well, he kept it by building an ark. Okay? He did something. The second covenant, did he do anything? No. The bottom paragraph is a description of imposed law versus design law paradigm. Which way would you have written it? Uh, it, uh, uh, Let's 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 just move on. Um, But... What does it mean to keep? I want you to think about what it means to keep a covenant. So, on Monday's lesson, the first covenant God made with Abraham was a promise of blessings if Abraham would leave and go. Okay? So, to honor that covenant, Abraham had to do something. He had to pick up and go. And he was wealthy, and so he had lots of people that went with him and everything else, etc. I can't imagine. Okay? He was 75 years old when this happened. Okay? 75 years old, established, all his belongings, um, servants, household, etc. Lot in his household. You know, it's like, did any of you ever know the... Goat man growing up in the South. This was a man who had about a hundred goats and he had this covered wagon and he traveled up and down Highway 41. Now, I lived in Florida, my grandparents lived in Mont Eagle. 41 was a route we took most of the time between Florida and Mont Eagle. And somewhere you'd find the goat man. And we would pester our parents to stop and visit with the goat man. Because he, he, this covered wagon would open up and he had all sorts of trinkets all around the thing. You know, he was a peddler. And um, stories went around about how many wives he had and all this sort of stuff, etc. And it was really entertaining, you know. But you, you'd stop the car and you go up and, and, you know, this whole thing was just full of goats and people and kids running around, some of them dirtier than others. And um, it was a goat man. Abraham was more than a goat man, okay? I mean, but it was a mass exodus, the second covenant that, that um, God made with Abraham, it says, For all the land of Palestine is to be given to you and your descendants, Genesis fifteen eighteen. It was sealed in a manner typical of contracts. Dead animals, walking back and forth in between them, all that sort of stuff. Okay? And yet it was more of a promise on God's part than an agreement on Abraham's part. Okay? Ten years later, Abraham and Sarah hatched this plan 
about how to have a son. It was done in the standard manner, culturally current, culturally accepted. It was the established legal way of having a son if your wife couldn't have any. Okay? He was not doing something unusual. You know, we may think it's unusual, but, you know, that was the standard way. Abraham and Sarah were doing what was the common practice for lineage and inheritance in their day and age. Okay? So, we're a bit tough on them, saying they didn't have enough faith to believe that God would do what they were doing. They did what was normal. How do you make a decision in your culture to do what you're supposed to do? They were following the rules. Okay, I would like to, in in the last few minutes of the class, go through Wednesday's lesson, okay? Hagar and Mount Sinai. God, in the lesson it says, God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, which if you look up the word, El Shaddai, okay? El being God, Shaddai, Almighty, the God Almighty, Okay? When he appeared to Moses and the children of Israel, it wasn't with that same word. What word was it? We say Jehovah, Yahweh. Depends on how you put the vowels in, etc. What does Jehovah or Yahweh mean? Existence. Self-existence. Included in that is creation, the the existence of creation, okay? So he was creator and sustainer. He was not the Almighty. And yet, what did he do to the Egyptians? It was like the Almighty, okay? The covenant that he made at Sinai with the children of Israel, Exodus 19, What was the children of Israel's part? Reading Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is giving promises and assurance of who he is and how he will take care of them. What were their response? All that you say, we're going to do. Now, wait a minute. This is a disconnect. God is saying, here's who I am and here's what I'm going to provide you. And here's the children of Israel saying, we're going to do it. Has nothing to do with what God is presenting. There's a disconnect. In our mind, because we think this is a legal contract, we have connected the two and made what God presents and what they have said as what was supposed to have happened. And it's not. God is giving promises and assurance. They are assuring him that they will do whatever he says and they mean well. There's lots of stories in the Bible of people who meant well. Peter. Peter meant well. You know, the denial of Peter is mentioned in all four Gospels. Okay? Matthew 26, 31. Mark 14, 27. Luke 22, 61. John 13, 36 to 38. When Peter said, I will not deny you, was he lying? He meant what he said. He just didn't know who he was. Okay? So, when God said, keep my covenant, what did he mean? 
What does the word keep mean? He says obey. Hold. Remember. Let's go and, and compare this to something else. Compare this with the memories of the miracles and the surroundings of Christ's birth that Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. In NIV, King James, otherwise it says she kept these things in her heart. Did she obey them? No. She kept them as evidences that her son was special. It said something about the gift of her son. She didn't have to do anything. I mean, yes, she got pregnant, but I don't mean to belittle that at all. Don't, don't get me wrong. Psalms 1-2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Other versions say he keeps the law in his heart. Psalms 119 is all about the law and how appreciation of the law and keeping the law. What does it mean to keep? There's a passage from Mrs. White that says, No one who believes in Jesus Christ is under bondage to the law of God. For his law is a law of life, not of death. To those who obey it, precepts. All who comprehend the spirituality of the law, all who realize its power as a detector of sin, are in just as helpless a condition as is Satan himself, unless they accept the atonement provided for them in the remedial sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is our atonement at one mint with God. Okay? Through faith in Christ, obedience to every principle of the law is made possible. 6 B.C. 1077. You know, in the, in the translation, King James translation, um, it talks about, you will be my peculiar people. It, it's mentioned in, Ex, in Deuteronomy 14.2, Exodus 19.5, Titus 2.14, 1 Peter 2.9. I... Um, Growing up, that's what we read in our, our household. And, and um, I remember there was a sermon once a time um, preached about how we should be a peculiar people. I happened upon a book. It's called the King Chain Bible Word Book. Okay? And it has about, I don't know, it's 1,400 words that have changed from the time. Uh, I'm sorry, 827 words that have changed from the 2,600 words that have changed from King James era to now in vernacular and how they're, they're, how they're spoken. I would like to read you in the last couple minutes uh, peculiar, okay? It seems strange to the reader of today that the Bible calls God's chosen people a peculiar people, Deuteronomy 14.2. And it's no less strange that the same designation is applied by Paul and Peter to those who are redeemed by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.14, 1 Peter 2.9. The word peculiar is so commonly used in the sense of odd or eccentric that it seems to be inappropriate in these contexts. But in 1611, the word had not yet gotten that meaning. It meant one's very own. And was applied to private, personal property as distinguished from what is owned in common. The same Hebrew word, which is translated peculiar in Deuteronomy, is translated special in Deuteronomy 7, 6, which reads, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The word segula, King James, elsewhere translated as peculiar treasure, own proper good, and jewels. It's the choice jewels that a king selected as, these are my crown jewels. The revised versions have given up the use of the word peculiar in these passages. They use treasure 
in First Chronicles and Ecclesiastes, but elsewhere use my own possession as a translation. The phrase of peculiar people has disappeared. In Titus, the RSV now says, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity, to purify himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. In 1 Peter 2.9, it reads, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness in his marvelous light. God treasures us. We're not the weird people. Okay? Well, we might be. But... God treasures us. He loves all of us and wants all of us to be home with him. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of reading about you, to experiencing you in a small way. May we grow in grace like you. May we relate to those around us with compassion working in their best benefit so that they may come to you more closely. Amen.